Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, co-host, Ed Klass. And Ed, today, we're honored to have Blair Enns on the show. Yes, I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Yeah, because I tried to line it up a couple years ago, and uh, he had a crazy travel schedule, and uh, it kind of worked out good, though, because he's just published a book. But let me go ahead and read his bio and then bring him in. Blair Ends provokes, inspires, and challenges creative professionals to radically change how they build and run their businesses. He's spoken to numerous independent networks, peer groups, ad clubs, design schools, Fortune 1000 companies, as well as national and international conferences of advertising design and PR practitioners. He is the author of what I think has become a cult classic, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto, a great book uh, and a great title. And his most recent book, which I was honored to be able to read before it was published, is Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. So right up our alley, Ed. Blair Ends, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Oh, thank you so much, Ron. I'm a big fan of the show, and I'm really happy to be here. And, and I just want you to know there's absolutely no meaning behind the fact that you are on the show on 420 because I'm in California <laughs> and you're in Canada, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm not just in Canada. I'm in the Kootenays in British Columbia, Canada, where the uh, I like to joke that the economy, the three big economies are logging, dope growing and consulting. Well, I'm in Northern California, so if I go a little bit north, that's a big part of our economy as well. So, But the total coincidence, total coincidence. So, Blair, I have to ask you, we've never met, and, and yet I, I feel like I know you because we've, we have conversed, we have emailed, I have read your book, which was like having a dialogue with you. But how'd you get to be where you are? What, what is your background whence you came, if you will? <laughs> yeah, so I... I grew up in the advertising profession. Um, I was academically expelled from university after one year. I was a horrible student. And advertising was one of the professions where they would let anybody in back at the time. It's not, it's not really the case that way anymore. Um, so I grew up in advertising and then went to work for some design firms. And really the impetus for Win Without Pitching, which was a consulting practice and is now a training company, um, the driving force behind it was really my desire to move to this little village in the remote mountains of British Columbia, and I needed to earn a way to find a way to earn a living. So I launched. Uh, I had the sense that I'd been through some sales training in my role of of uh, salesperson, or we don't actually use that term in advertising, new business development person. 
in uh, ad agencies. And um, when I went through that sales training, it occurred to me that the logic of how the rest of the world sells is missing from the advertising profession. So when I wanted to move to this little village, I needed to start a business. And it just seemed to me that um, teaching, um, bringing kind of saner practices to the creative professions and at the time advertising in particular seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. And and when did you fall on this idea of win without pitching? Because I love it. Because when I first got into advertising agencies, I, I was kind of amazed at some of their business practices. And this was one of them. How did you get inspired to come up with that concept? Well, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. I think people in advertising cannot get enough outside perspective on how ridiculous the free pitch is. So if you know our listeners are not in the creative professions, the free pitch is where you are a creative professional, usually in advertising. It's known as the advertising disease, but it's spread through design and other creative professions. Um, the pitch is where you're invited to give your highest value product away for free, your thinking, your strategic thinking and your ideas as a means of proving your fit for the engagement. So when I, uh, fairly early on in my agency career, uh, my first boss discovered or thought that I might have an aptitude for new business. So he handed responsibility for sales or new business, as we called it, to me when I was 22. And I did it the way I was taught to do it, which is you correct you build these massive pitch decks, you go into presentation mode, you try to get your foot in the door, get a project, talk people into things, give your best ideas away for free as proof of your ability to do the job. And then after just a few years, I got really tired of it. Um, in fact, I was in, a, I was in a sales meeting with somebody, and um, this was a different firm. My boss, the president of the agency, was with me, and, and the client said to us, okay, this you guys seem like a really good fit here. I'd like you to go away and come back with some ideas on, um, on the campaign that we might take the market. And uh, I was fed up and I, I looked at him and I said, no, we, we don't, we don't pitch for free. But at the same moment I said it, my boss said, okay. <laughs> the three of us all looked at each other and we had this little Mexican standoff and I forget how we extricated ourselves from the situation, but, that led to a heart-to-heart talk with my boss, and he gave me the freedom to do it the way I, I wanted to do it. And I didn't, know, I didn't know what to replace free pitching with. I just knew I was fed up with the late-night proposal writing and giving our best product away for free. So he, um, he was great. He let me explore different things, and over the next couple of years, I really co- cobbled together kind of an understanding of why the free pitch is so rampant and how creative firms can extricate themselves from free pitching and and Blair without giving away the whole book because I know we can't do it justice but what is the central premise of the win without pitching manifesto yeah so I've, I'm always trying to distill it down into the fewest words or lessons as possible I would say in two steps you win without pitching by number one reclaiming some of the power back in the buy-sell relationship. And in, in um, probably most professionals would see the situation this way, but absolutely most creative professionals would see that in a typical uh, sales situation, it is the buyer, the client that has the power. Uh, right. They're mistaken about the source of the client's power. They think it is, uh, it's the client's checkbook, and it really it's the availability, the, 
the choice that the client has, the availability of, uh, of, of suitable substitutes to hire in your firm. So number one, it's reclaim some of that power back, and that's usually done through specializing. Um, and your, your colleague, Tim Williams, does a lot of work on that as well as in the work uh, area of pricing. And then once you reclaim some of the power back by building up a, a more uh, a firm of deeper expertise through specializing, then the second step is to leverage that power to change how your services are bought and sold. So in most situations, A, the firms have little power to push back on flawed selection or procurement processes. And, um, and B, some firms have some power, but they haven't been trained or they don't, they don't intuitively know how to leverage that power to push back and, and get uh, concessions granted to them in the sale. Right. You, you know, just from a human psychology standpoint, the person who says no tends to have more of the power. And I just love the idea of backing off that, no, we don't pitch for free. You know, this is what we, we're, we're <laughs> that, that's what amazed me about the advertising agency business was that it, here's the ultimate in ideation and creative industry. Yeah. I mean, all they sell is ideas and ideas are incredibly valuable. I mean, try, try executing a crappy idea. Uh, I don't care how flawless your execution is. If it's a bad idea. It's going to be a, a lousy result. And here they are, you know, not only pricing it by the hour, which we'll get to next, but but they're giving it away in these pitches. And I just thought, wow, this is amazing. No other business would do this. And so I just love the fact that you're empowering them to kind of put up their hand and say no. It, is that what you find when the when the agencies or the firms that you consult with implement this, that when they take a step back like that, the, the client takes three steps forward? Yeah, there's a, I, I often say a standard sales approach is advance, advance, advance. We have you advance, engage, and then take a step back, retreat and see if the client advances, retreat again, see if the client advances. And then I like to say retreat right back into your cave, then pounce on them, kill them, and eat them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that's great. Well, we'll definitely link to the, to the book. And, um, and now I want to kind of ask you, with respect to your latest book, which is Pricing Create Creativity, how did you get into pricing to begin with? I mean, I, I know it's a logical extension from the other book, but what was your, what was the driver? Yeah, pricing really is a logical or should be a logical extension from selling and negotiating. I really see those three topics as, as, uh, um, as interwoven, and it's really hard to get good at one without being good at the others. And I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed at how long I was a sales consultant or running a sales training organization before I faced the fact that I actually knew very little about pricing. I was, um, I tell this story in the book too, I was on, we had recently shifted from a, a consulting practice to a training company and I was onboarding the president of an advertising agency into our training program. And I had He'd attended some seminars I'd done previously, so I kind of knew we knew who he. I knew who he was. He had been following my stuff, and he'd bought some products, knowledge products from us. And as I was onboarding him into the program, he said to me, "You know, I, I really need to tell you um, uh, that we've made a lot of money from your advice over the years." And I said, "Oh, that's great." And he said, uh, "No, no, he really wanted me to know. No, no, we've we've made we've made millions of dollars." <laughs> um, I, I personally made millions of dollars from implementing your advice. And he went on to tell me about the, uh, 
the large engagements that he closed where he was able to derail competitive pitches. Um, and I was, I had this really interesting reaction. I felt a bunch of emotions at the same time. First of all, I was, I was grateful. Um, second, I did recognize that he was overweighting my contribution. I've given advice to lots of people, some solicited, solicited and some unsolicited. And, you know, it's those people who have the courage to kind of implement who, who succeed or implement the good advice anyway. But the, the most interesting thing that I struggled with was I had this reaction that that's not fair. It's not fair <laughs> because I totaled up how much money that I thought he had spent with me over the years, and it was three or four or five thousand dollars. And so I kind of caught hold of myself, and I said, "Well, of course it's not unfair, Blair. It's um, you know, you people have paid you a lot more money and not received the same benefit. So let's just um, drop this idea of whether it's fair or not." So after I hung up the phone, I resolved that I was going to learn more. I was going to find a way to earn more money in my consulting practice. I was going to study the subjects of of value, value-based pricing, and fairness. And then I ordered a bunch of books, and the first book I read was uh, your book, Pricing on Purpose. And the, I, I had three books, and I thought, I'll read these three books, and I'll ne- learn what I need to know about pricing. And I got through the first chapter of your first book, and I, was, I, was, I, was, uh, I finally saw the scale of the problem, and uh, I realized I'm not going to get through this in three books, but I was also transfixed with it. I was just, I fell in love with the topic. So that sent me on a course of many three or four years of reading everything I could. And then being in the fortunate position where when I would come up, I would uh, learn about some ideas or conceive of my own ideas, I would roll them out along among my client base and they would report back a lot of the times and say, wow, that worked. And I, and I would think, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that, so well, Blair, that's awesome, and, and we're up against our first break, unfortunately, but Ed, I'm sure we'll pick this up on the other side, but folks, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, you can send us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com, and now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Just uh, wanted to, to let you know, Blair, that win, winning with, with, by pitching is not just limited to the advertising space. It also exists in the software reselling space as well because this is something uh, that I have to, to deal with. In other words, they, they don't sell the software, but they do give away their best ideas right up <laughs> right up and ahead. So it's very bizarre. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, um, during the break we mentioned that um, – that you're, you, you, I asked you about Mad Men. You said you weren't a, a big fan, but there, there was a, uh, a, 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 a scene in that where one of the lead characters, Don Draper, uh, pitches something, and I believe they talked about a price. Was there, was there at one time the pitch was was a semi-paid engagement? Um, sometimes, uh, even today, pitches are paid, and there's a new take on the paid pitch called the client workshop that the clients are asking for. Um, so from time to time, clients would pay for pitches, but the origin of the pitch in the agency business, it used to be the money was in the 15% media commissions or, or even, uh, even higher at some point. Um, so there were millions of dollars to be made and it kind of made sense at the time to give the creative away the way, um, some businesses will give away hardware as a means of selling consumables. Um, sure. So that's the origin of it, and and yeah, going back right to the beginning, there were times when some clients would pay agencies to pitch, but it was never uh, it was never as common as the unpaid pitch. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I just wanted I just wanted to understand that because I, I do talk about that uh, one particular scene in there sometime, but it was, so that's helpful for me. I, I want to get to get to um, you thought that um, you felt that it wasn't fair. Right. Um, but then on the other side, you say that that uh, pricing needs to be fair. Right. My initial idea, the exchange that I had with this uh, ad agency president who was signing up and I thought it was unfair to me. And I, I do explore this in the book, this notion of fairness. But fairness is like um, fairness is like value in that it is entirely subjective. In fact, fairness is even more subjective, I would assert, than, than value is because you can quote two-thirds of the types of value that, that we're talking about, especially in a business transaction, are economic. You can measure revenue gains. You can measure cost reductions. And then the, the overlay that makes everything so subjective is what's often known as the emotional contributions to value, that big, murky, messy category of things like personal risk, career, um, you know, things, that are, things that are important to the individual in the transaction that cannot be quantified. Um, but fairness is entirely a feeling that, yes, uh, this felt good and I would do it again, and that feeling has to exist on both sides of the table. So, yeah, I, it, pricing does have to be fair. And um, sometimes I'm asked, well, 
should we be trying to uh, extract as much money as we can from the client for the work that we do? The short answer is yeah, kind of, sort of. The longer answer is you, you want to be paid as much money as the client is willing to pay you while still feeling like the transaction was fair that they would do this again. Right, but it, and this is where I, I, I push back, and I also push back with Reed uh, Holden when he was on the show on this. Is it isn't a price that's agreed to upfront almost by definition fair? Yeah, I talk about this book in a in the book. Um, I don't know if uh, I can think of some prices where you pay them and you don't think that they're fair. So extortion, kidnapping, ransom, and Uber surge fees. Right, where people <laughs> people pay them but they're left enraged over the price that they had to pay. So if you'd ask them, do you think the price is fair? They would say, I don't think it's fair at all. Now, if you use the measure of fair as well, they agree to it, therefore they see it's fair, then by that measure, it's fair. But I, I really see the idea of fairness as, pers- as entirely subjective. It's not just good enough that the client is willing to pay I think, especially in a in a relationship where you want the client to buy from you again, I think you want to have a transaction, that double thank you moment where the client pays you and thanks you and feels good about the transaction. It's nothing more than a feeling. Yeah, no, I I, I hear that. That it, it's just it is that notion. I just think that if if you if it's agreed to upfront, it's fair. I want to move on to something else though, because I really love this sentence in the book. And I, and I want you to explain it because it's something that I'm fascinated by, this notion of branding. You say that the moment the buyer cares who the seller is, is the moment a brand is born. Could you uh, elaborate on that? I love that sentence, by the way. Yeah, so if we think of commodities where you've got, uh, you've got this fungible pool of products, right? And everybody who's – any seller can dump their – product into it, their commodity into it, and they'll get the price, and the client doesn't really care. You know, they don't really care where all the wheat comes from that goes into their bread, although, I mean, that may be changing, but that's essentially one of the definitions of a commodity. This, you've got this interchangeable pool where as long as you meet certain qualities, seller can, sellers can essentially sell into the pool, and buyers buy from the pool without really caring who, caring who the sellers are. Um, now, you, when you as a producer are able to kind of add more value than your competitors, you're able to set yourself apart in a meaningful way to the point where you can command a price premium, then clients will seek you out. And I remember being in a heritage town years ago, an old kind of Western town where they were recreating Western life, and somebody was making butter and wrapping the butter up in um, – brown paper wrappers. And there was an old lady standing next to me who said um, she was reminiscing that her grandmother used to, uh, people would pay a premium for her butter. So all these uh, farm wives would make butter and sell it to the general store and they would put their name or their initials on the butter. And maybe she wasn't commanding a premium, but she was proud of the fact that people would choose her grandmother's butter first. And that's an example of a brand, just that signature or initials on the brown paper wrapper that's saying this, uh, it's this implied promise that this was product was made by this person. So you can accept, uh, you can expect a higher standard. 
And it's amazing to me how few professionals understand that because they 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 automatically jump to themselves as commodity. And it, I I personally think that it's it has to do with self esteem. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm fond of saying that, um, uh, and I talk about this in the book as well. It's uh, profit margin really is a function of the self esteem of the salesperson, in particular when you're selling the intangibles of ideas and advice. Um, the idea that any professional of any kind, whether they're in the creative professions or the more standard professions, um, would see themselves, see what they're selling as commodified is actually a little bit insane because uh, maybe insane is a strong word. It's a little bit ludicrous because the ideas, when you're selling ideas and advice, the ideas and advice that are going to come out of your mind are going to be different, even if there's a lot of similarities, they're almost certainly going to be different than the ideas and advice that come from somebody else, as different as the two of you are as individuals. So it's interesting that professionals are trapped in this place where they're selling what is really one of the least commodified services of all. But if you ask most of them, as you point out, Ed, most of them would say that they're in a highly, highly commodified space. Yeah, it truly is amazing uh, that, that that they're they're stuck in that. And I, I, you're right. I think it, it it is definitely self self esteem. So hey, uh, and I hope I can squeeze this one this last question in because we got about two and a half minutes minutes left, and this might be something that has to carry over to the break. But the the other point in the book that you mentioned is that uh, you can have a culture of efficiency or one of customer innovation, but not both. Only one will survive. And I, first of all, I am in total violent agreement with you on that. But why do you think that is? Well, I would expect you to be in violent agreement on that because the first time I heard it discussed was probably listening to you and Ron talk about it. But I think you used Peter Drucker's term, effectiveness, uh, where I use customer innovation. Um, and I just see it in the, I just see it in creative firms. The more they pursue timesheets and the more the more they pursue billable efficiencies, like the nature of efficiencies is about eliminating waste, right? Um, innovation, which is innovating for the client, trying to come up with ways to um, create extraordinary value, requires experimentation. It requires waste. It requires you to be able to put your feet up on the desk and think about things differently. So... The, uh, and I know I, I worked in a large multinational ad agency where I, I like to joke afterwards um, that if I was caught thinking, I was beaten. I was not hired to think. <laughs> I was hired to do. Um, and so I just see it in the cultures of the many firms that I work with. You've, some are focused on creating for the value, and they have the time and space, the room to come up with new ideas and try new things and take risks. And others don't have time because they're focused on billing as many hours as they can and getting the job done as efficiently as possible. Yeah, so true. Well, uh, I can't believe it. As as always, this flies by. I want to remind our our listeners that the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where we post show notes, including this one with Blair coming up early next week, as well as previews to our upcoming shows. Uh, right, right now, I want to remind you that you can contact me or Ron by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Abacus Next. The future of online TV is here. 
view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Blair Enns, the author of the new book, Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. And Blair, one of the one of the lines I just loved about the book, because we talk about this all the time, and it's even for firms that have made the transition, if you ask any of them, they'll say the toughest part of this is the value conversation. And you wrote in the book, The Value Conversation, Where Price Theory Goes to Die. And yeah. I just loved the analogy, and I, I won't spoil it. I'll let you bring it up. But the analogy you make of the value conversation is like, I'm gonna, I'll let you complete that. <laughs> well, you're putting me on the spot. I don't remember the analogy. <laughs> oh, it was I like the birds and the, the bees talk away. with your, it, the birds and the bees talk with your kid. Oh yeah. So the first time you have the the birds and the bees talk with your kids, um, it's awkward. You're delivering the information, but you really fumble your way through it. And then you think of a, of a guidance counselor in school or a public health nurse who has this conversation all day long. They take the same information and can deliver it in the same framework, and they just deliver it with this fluidity and confidence. And really, the va- in the value conversation, you know, as you point out, I say that's where pricing theory goes to die because this is a subject of tacit knowledge. It's not you can't just read a book and right. become a great 
value pricer. I think there are levels of value-based pricing success. There's understanding the principles, and a, a lot of them you can apply right away, so that's the first level. But really, the highest level, the level of mastery, is those who master the value conversation. So you really have to you have to fail forward. You have to understanding that it's like this sex talk. It's it's the first one's going to be awkward. Um, you're going to not want to do it again potentially after the first time you have the conversation. But you'll be better the second time. You'll be better the third time. And once you have a dozen or so under your belt, you'll be really good at it. Once you have 20 or so under your belt, you'll, you'll be a master at it. And when you, when you master the value conversation, what happens is you will drive a mindset shift. And it, doesn't, it won't happen until you've mastered the value conversation. And the mindset shift is you will quit talking about you. You will quit thinking about you. You will quit bringing solutions to the table too early. And in the value conversation, you will be completely focused on the client and how you can create the most value, value possible for the client without even thinking, giving a second thought to your solutions. And the moment that happens, you just open up this whole higher level of success and, you, and uh, the, the monetary reward at that level is... Uh, I think some people don't even appreciate the level of financial reward that is available to them from mastering the value conversation. Right. You know, we have a couple of colleagues who we think are just are literally masters at it. And yet even that they will admit that they don't get it right all the times. You know, they, they still screw up or forget something, but it, it truly is an art. And the, the thing that the other thing I really liked about your book is you have a kind of four conversation overview to the value. You kind of break it into four steps. Can you kind of walk us through your process for the value conversation? Yeah. First I'll say, you know, I think that mastering the value conversation might possibly be the most valuable skill in business, period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if there's a more valuable skill to your career and to your business, I can't think of it. Yeah, um, so true. So my value conversation framework, there's a fairly standard framework out there for the value conversation that it goes by um, objectives, measures, values, or sorry, values. So what are the business objectives to be met here? How are we going to measure success? And then what is the value of that success? And so I've built on that. Um, I've modified the first step and I've added a fourth step. So my four steps are Number one, commit the client to their desired future state. Number two, attach me metrics. Number three, determine the value of meeting those metrics. And then step four, which I see is really valuable, is offer pricing guidance. So set a range before you come back with a proposal. If you're going to retreat to a simple proposal, set a range because if there's a price objection, you want to hear it. And that first step, that desired future state, instead of stating it as, um, uh, determine the business objectives. I, uh, I like the term desired future state. I think no matter what business you're in, no matter what it is that you're selling, you are selling to your client or customer a desired future state, a better version of themselves. And in that de uh, concept of desired future state, I'm trying to sum up both the needs of the organization, but also the wants of the individual. And I think there's a there's an approach to selling in the early part of uh, qualifying that's 
in the sale that's known as the five whys approach, and it's used outside of sales as well. So a prospective client might say to you, um, you might say, what do you need? And the answer is, well, we need a new website. Why do you need a new website? Well, uh, the old one's not performing well. Why is the old one not performing well? So through the five whys approach, you kind of peel the onion of need. And one day I realized if you have to ask five whys, your first question was probably a pretty poor one. So we have you go right to the um, what, what it is that – ask people what they want, and there are different ways to do this, but instead of getting the corporate needs – Think of instead of thinking of it as a B2B transaction, even though it almost certainly is, think of it as one human helping another human and try to determine what it is that this human being across the table from you wants personally. And they'll communicate the corporate needs in addition to the uh, into in addition to the wants. So once you have, you know, notes on that you commit the client to that by saying, if I understand you correctly, these are the things that you want to be true afterwards. And then you move to um, metrics. The question is, well, how will we know when these, we have succeeded? What do, what are the things that we will measure that proves that these, this, this state or the elements of this state have been reached? And then you make a list there. And then you move to this, uh, the third step, which is value, which is as simple as, well, what's the value to you and you know, primarily to the organization, here's where we're trying to translate things into economic value. What's the value of us hitting these metrics? And then you might arrive at a number where you add it up for the client and say, well, if we get you to this desired future state, hit these metrics, the value of this is a million dollars a year in recurring profit. So that's the economic value that you're looking to help the client uh, create. And then the fourth step is before you retreat to assemble your proposal, which should contain options and a high anchor, um, you would offer some pricing guidance. And we want to anchor in the guidance. So you would start with a high number and you would say, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to think about different ways that we might help you. Uh, and I'll come back with some options in the Y to X range. So in this case, and there's, we can talk about the math behind how you choose Y and X, the two ends of your range. Um, it's mostly art, I'll say that, but you deliver that range. So I might say half a million on the high side to 100,000 on the low side. And then I would have you stop and just in that silence that follows, you're going to um, gain all kinds of information from the client on, on how that price range sits with them. Right. <clears throat> uh, that moment of silence is so key too, and not to say anything during it. I mean, this is something I learned from Stanley Marcus he said, you know, I've seen many salesmen talk themselves out of a sale, but I've never seen one listen themselves out of a sale. <laughs> you, you, you quote Dan Sullivan, a question that he likes to ask, and, I, and, I, and it is a great question, it's, and I'll just read it for the, for the listeners. It's, it's three years from today, and you and I are having coffee. You are really happy with the progress you've made over the, these past three years. What's happened to make you so happy? That, that is a great question, and I'm just curious, Blair, what are some of your other favorite questions for a value conversation, just generically, because oh. I know they're customized and all of that, but just generically, what do you, do you kind of like to ask? Yeah, so my favorite, beyond that question, which we refer to as the three-year question, it's also known as the R-factor question or the Dan Sullivan question. Dan wrote a book about it. It's called the Dan Sullivan question. <laughs> That's a, such a powerful question. 
But after that, my uh, I have this little technique that I call anchoring against guaranteed value. And it's a way to arrive at the theoretical maximum that the client might pay you. And you use it in the fourth step of the value conversation where you're setting a price range. And you don't, you don't have to use it relig- religiously every time. It's just a nice arrow in your quiver. And the way you would do it, propose it, is you would say, um, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the open-ended version of the question, but I like the closed-ended version better. So the open-ended question is, okay, um, if we do all these things, we'll create a million dollars a year in recurring profit. Um, if I were to guarantee, to guarantee you that we hit that million dollars a year number, what would that be worth to you? Right. So the closed-ended version is might be you might pick half a million. If I if I guaranteed this, would you would you pay us half a million dollars? And what you're doing is you're you're trying to uncover the theoretical maximum, and you're you might hear back as a reply. Are are you saying you're willing to guarantee this? And you don't have to, you haven't even thought about it at this point. You're saying no, it's just hypoth- it's a hypothetical question. I'm just. We might be able to guarantee it. We might not. I actually haven't thought about the solutions. But if we did, if I did guarantee it, um, would you pay us a half a million dollars? And if the client says, yeah, yeah, we would pay a half a million dollars, then great. You have the high end of your range. You would set your low end, and that low end might come from the client himself. And then whatever prices you come up with in your proposal in the following that you'll present in the following conversation, the closing conversation, every price in there will have an uncertainty discount built in. And if you can remove all of the uncertainty from the engagement, then you would charge the theoretical maximum. If you find yourself in a, that 500000 and if you find yourself in a situation where you, you can't remove all the uncertainty, but you feel a high degree of confidence around your solution, you might put, put it forward as your first option and say, you know, we thought about, we explored how we could guarantee um, outcomes here for half a million dollars, and we don't have that solution. We're not going to put it on the table for you today. We do have a $400,000 solution that, um, that removes a lot of the risk and uncertainty from the engagement. Let me walk you through it. Right. We're up against a break, but I, I think that ties in with your philosophy of say a price before you show a price. Is that right? Yeah, and that comes from the world of sale, not pricing, where if there is a sale, if there's a price objection, you want to hear it and you want to hear it early and you want to hear it before you retreat to assemble your options and prices in your proposal. Right, right. So we call we call it testing the price, but yeah, no, that's a it's a great philosophy. Well, Belair, this is excellent, and then Ed's going to take us to the end. But I just want to thank you for for coming on the Soul of Enterprise and and sharing your wisdom with us. This has been really fun. And uh, you, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to get a hold of Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage We'll have full show notes on our uh, chat with Blair, along with links to where you can find him and his books at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud 
can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Okay. All right. We're, so we're back. So I just I I just said that hey, you know, Blair ends pitching without meta, uh, win without pitching manifesto, and also a guide to profit beyond the bill of an hour. But a quick reminder to our audience too to uh, take a quick pause if you're listening to this on replay and give us a rating out on iTunes. We really appreciate that. That's uh, one of the currencies that we use. Blair, back to you. A couple couple things that I wanted to get to you before the end of the break. Um, one thing that you talk about with with uh, incredible aplomb is this notion of customer segmentation. Again, something with which I agree with you uh, violently. But I want to ask you this: Why do you think professional firms suck at it? Yeah, I think I think segmentation strategies are best used um, for productized services firms or product companies, where the businesses are. Scaled, there's a potentially infinite number of customers, and you have to segment and put your clients into groups. And I see segmentation as a, in a professional firm, it's um, you're really segmenting your audience client by client, individual by individual. And I think I think you're alluding to the fact that in uh, professional firms, we uh, many professionals get locked into this idea of you know, all clients want X where all clients have you know, a Y propensity for risk. That's another assumption. That exactly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that, and that's, that's, that's one of the things that I just don't think that they do a particularly good, good job of that. Um, I've got two things to ask you, but I'm going to ask the, the, the second one first, just in case we do run out of time. Cause this, this could be a, we, we could draw this out and that'd be fine. But um, one of the things that you you mention is using agile development, which is which is something that's come out of the software industry, unfortunately. And what I I've studied agile and I've been told by people who do agile development that it doesn't work for value pricing. 
and one of the things that I, I notice is that agile is is oftentimes used as a a um, as an excuse for not having project management at all, right? They'll they'll just say, "Well, yeah. we're we're an agile house, right?" <laughs> like, but but wait a minute, you're not you're not even agile, right? They're not even sticking <laughs> to any of the principles. They just like to use that because it means it means something like, "Well, we don't have to plan." And then you go further, which I think is beautiful, and you say, "Well." Just just because you use Agile doesn't mean you have to use Stone Age pricing. So what yeah, are your thoughts so on I, that? I, I'm not sure. I'm kind of reading between the lines that you might not be a fan of Agile. I actually... No. I, I, well, I, I, let, me, let me clarify. I think yeah. Agile works in software development internal, like the, the software, like Sage. Like we do Agile sprints. But when, we, when you're doing custom work for people, not so much. Yeah. I think, you know, in the creative professions, the design profession in particular, there's this really interesting thing going on where consulting, design, and software development are all kind of converging on the client and overlapping in the business. They're buying each other. The businesses are melding, and it's really interesting to see where it shakes out. So we're seeing agile. It's almost always a tech a tech. Um, basis for the design firm or the creative firms, but we're seeing it more and more in the creative firm space. And I actually think agile is a potentially a solution to some significant business problems. I think in the design world, the question of how we are going to work together, we being on the professional side and the client on their side is the, is the question of our time. Um, and I think agile is a pretty good solution where we, where we uh, accept that, um, we can't plan everything, and there's so much iteration, and and it's beneficial to get something into market early and then test it in the market. So it's really hard to plan that. It's really hard to scope that. Um, but as I'm sure you experience all the time, Ed, the folks who are proponents of Agile, um, they say you can't do Agile and, and that price based on value. And it is difficult. It's really hard to do because when you're uh, – if you're delivering any level of price certainty, you're uh, you're selling on value or you're selling on outputs or deliverables, then you've got to measure the risk of how much time and other resources, but it's mostly time it's going to take um, take to be able to do that. And Agile is essentially proposing to throw all that out the window. Now, as a client, uh, I shudder at the idea of buying anything that way because it's really hard to put a top end on how much you're going to end up paying. Um, but I, as I say in the book, and it, and it doesn't come from me, it comes from a, a, a quote from a former client of mine in a, in a technology-driven design firm who says, you know, just because it's the way of the future doesn't mean we're, we're, we're condemned to Stone Age pricing. I think there's a, and I don't have the, the answer to this that I would like to have, but I think the solution is we need to understand what components of the development or the project are kind of commoditized and um, hard to put our hands around, and maybe it makes sense to sell some things in sprints, but I absolutely see no reason why the project outcome, the final compensation, isn't in some way tied to the value created for the client. And I would like to see those people selling Agile to quit pushing all of the risk back onto the client. I would like to see them taking more risk. And that means um, not not having certainty that all their costs will, 
will be covered, but it also means that the upside is significant. It's potentially transformative. Right. And, and I think the, the distinction that I would begin to make, and thank you, I think you helped me even think this through as, I, as we're talking, is that, that uh, we, we tend to think of selling what we're selling as the output, but it's really an outcome. And I think you would agree with that notion. Right. Yeah. And the the out the outcome is going to be this the same regardless of how you get there. Um, you know, our friend Tim, Tim Williams has a great story about the landscaper and he talks about, you know, the, the, the outcome in a landscaper is you we want your house to have the best curb appeal in the neighborhood. How you get there is completely different. It, it, it's not it's not it doesn't matter based on the end state. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think um, there's so much resistance to value-based pricing. Never in principle, well, not never, rarely in principle, but you'll get all kinds of people who say, um, they'll put up their hands if you ask, and if you ask, are you, uh, first, are you familiar with the principles of value-based pricing? Yep, yep, yep. Are you applying those principles in your business? No, 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 you don't understand. Our business is different. And agile is one of those (laughs) excuses that's thrown out there. I think it's one of the slightly more credible excuses, but it's not credible enough in my eyes. Well, it's 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 interesting that you note that because, as I noted earlier, it's the it's the same thing in in software reselling too. I mean, the the, the and it, it's funny to me how often industries want want to claim that they are so different about things, but the reality is is that they just use the same excuses in a slightly different way. <laughs> yeah, and as Ron alluded to, the irony in the creative professions is these are some of the. I'm I'm just so thrilled to work with such creative people. They're just incredible people to be around. Their creativity is just so inspirational. But it's almost never applied to their business model. They uh they tend right. to do what everybody else does <laughs> and and take the easy path. So funny. Well, wh- this this hour has completely gone by so quickly. We want to thank you, both Ron and I, for appearing on the show today. You've been a superb guest, and uh, really hope that uh, y- your your book, your new book, does does well. Um, Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Oh, Ed, we have Free Writer Friday for April. Of course. How could I forget? It's always the last Friday of the month. Yes, Free Writer Friday. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours, Ron. All right. Thanks. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks. We'll be doing Free Rider Friday for the month of April at 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check out the show notes for today's show with our conversation with Blair Ends at thesoulofenterprise.com. Also, you can send uh, Ed or myself an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com.